Welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast about pop culture and hot goss through the lens of your nosy neighbor. I'm your host, Millie Brooks, and this is episode 38. Welcome, welcome, everybody. This is season three of the show, and all the episodes this season relate to infertility and people's journey to parenthood, including my own trials and tribulations. So today is a collaboration episode with Monique Farouk, who is the host of Infertility and Me, which is a discussion-style infertility podcast with real stories from real people about the complexities of conceiving. Combined with expert information that can be trusted. Um, Let me give you a little bit of background of how this collaboration episode came to be. I, so a couple weeks ago, I came across an article that Monique had written for the Fertility Tribe. Um, And she expressed some racism and prejudice that she experienced at a fertility clinic. And I immediately reached out to her to see if she wanted to collaborate on an episode and come on and share a little bit more about her experience. Um, We will also hear more about her journey um, and more about her podcast and what she's gained um, since launching that. Um, So today we have the pleasure of talking with Monique. But before we get to that, Two important announcements. Announcement number one. This is a shout out to Katie LeClaire, who started the infertility greeting card company called Holland Reese after undergoing IVF. Holland Reese is the name of her daughter that was conceived via IVF. And the mission of the greeting card company is to not only spread cheer and positivity through cute greeting cards, but to take a portion of the proceeds and give it to a deserving member of the infertility community at the end of the year. So check out Holland Reese on Instagram and support her business, which is clearly helping many people in the infertility community. Announcement number two, please rate, review, and subscribe to me, myself, and Millie on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help the show to grow and thrive and reach a larger audience. So, you know, if the show doesn't grow and thrive, I just end up sitting here all day with me, myself, and Millie, and ugh, that gets boring after a while, guys. Alrighty, we are here with Monique. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Millie, for having me. It's it's definitely a pleasure and honor, and I love your your podcast. I've listened to quite a few episodes, so I've gotten familiar with your flow and your judge and your vibe. So really great. I love well, it. Well, the feeling is mutual. I love listening to your show and um, I'm excited to chat with you today so we can do a deeper dive into your story. Yeah. Thank you again for, for having me and letting me listen, um, speak to you and your listener friends on your podcast. Well, why don't we start, you know, for the folks who are not familiar with you, um, tell us a little bit about who you are and a brief overview of your journey. Yeah, so I have a three and a half year old boy now. His name is Omar Jr. My husband and I conceived him in August of 2016. I know the exact date of my embryo transfer and everything was August the 19th, 2016. And uh, we got our positive um, pregnancy test and blood test, our beta test, um, what, two and a half weeks later, something like that. I uh, went through four years of infertility with my husband. We were married for two years before we started trying to conceive actively um, and not just being off of birth control and just letting it see what happened, you know. So 
it was about four years of infertility, four and a half years. But um, in the very beginning of our journey, I wasn't quite sure if it was me. I kind of had like this strange feeling like it was me. And, you know, a woman's intuition, you know, we we know some things about ourselves a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just had like this weird feeling. I was like, I feel like it's me, like something is going on that's undetectable and asymptomatic kind of a thing. You know what I mean? So I got tested and I had right tubal blockage. It was some like mucus or dead tissue from previous menstrual menses or whatever that had gotten stuck in there. And also um, that went on for, let's see, that went on for about four years. And then four years later, it was like, we went through this four year break period um, where we didn't go back to see a specialist because I did have an IUI done after I got that first diagnosis and it was unsuccessful. And so we waited four years before we went back. Like my husband wasn't ready and I don't know, I was ready, but I was, I wasn't ready. Like it was, it was the weirdest thing ever. And I always tell people like we were just walking around with these elephants on our shoulders, these three ton elephants on our shoulders, you know, all the time for four years. And it was very strange because we would have conversations about it, but my husband really wasn't really ready to accept the fact that he was unable to get me pregnant as a man. And it's not that he was the one with the diagnosis. Like I said, it was me. Um, But, you know, a man wants to be able to do certain things, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And when something is blocking that, it kind of messes with their psyche a little bit. So I think a lot of it had to do with that. He just, he wasn't ready to, to accept the fact that, you know, we needed help from a doctor, a specialist. And then when the time came, he was like, okay, let's just do it. You know, we're over the age of 30 now. Um, so I think we should, if it's now or never kind of a thing. And, you know, so we saved our coins and everything. We were able to get it done because at the time, Maryland hadn't passed any laws yet where it was mandatory to have um, insurance cover some of the costs of like your testing, which can be like three grand easily. Right. Yeah. So we, I found a specialist um, off the radio actually locally and they were in, located in Virginia. They've been around for about 40, almost 40 years. And I don't know, I just felt drawn to them. I'm a spiritual person. So I look for the signs and the wonders, you know, and I just kind of felt drawn to it. And I heard the, the, the commercial for, their clinic over the radio probably about three or four times before I went and researched and found out more about them. And then I was able to see the doctors and then it was a female doctor there because I had been looking for one and I was actually looking for a black specialist, which is like a topic for a whole other day. But um, because of the experience I had previous to um, me going to get treatment now at this point in 2016. So anywho, I, I went on there, there was a female doctor and she was just great. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I love it. My this dog. is this is so great, Monique. <laughs> I like r- listen. I like real, raw, authentic um, <laughs> interviews. I don't oh, like the polished kind. So, what's your dog's name? His name is Sebastian. He's an old man now. He'll be 12 in December. December 29th, he'll be 12. He's a Pekingese, so he's a little. He's like a medium-sized dog, under 20 pounds, but. He is looking for somewhere to mark his territory. He is still trying to assert himself with the baby. So anywhere the baby's been, he'll try to mark his territory and stuff. So I have to like catch him and send him outside. It's crazy. I love it. (laughs) OMG, yes. So I stopped at the um, new specialist. Yeah. So got the new specialist and it was um, it was history from there. We went through two cycles. Um, The second one was the successful cycle and they actually considered the cycle that it was successful as um, one, a one-time try because the first time the egg and the sperm did not fertilize to make an embryo. So in their clinic, they considered the second time actually the first time, but I consider it two times because I had to get those embryo, those eggs um, removed, you mm-hmm. know, two times. You had, you know you what had I mean? two egg retrievals. Yeah, I had two because I did natural cycle. And so it was less medicated. And I didn't do frozen transfers. I did fresh transfers trans- transfers with the natural cycle. Yeah. Got it. Got yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many clinics did you go to? So the one that I was successful with was my second clinic. The first one was in a different state. Um, our home state is Maryland. And we were living in a, a completely different state a couple hours away. 
um, for the first time when I got diagnosed the first time. And my first diagnosis was right tubal blockage. And when I went back four years, the tubal blockage had removed itself. It cleared itself out. And then I was diagnosed with hypothyroid disease. And also I had uterine polyps. So all of that had to be cared for, which is why it took so long. It was like July before we did our first um, embryo retrieval. Um, because I had to wait three, four months, you know, to get all those things under control, be on medication for three months for the thyroidism and then get the polyps removed and then wait for post-op appointment, you know, so you know how it is, yeah. it's a whole freaking process. You know, it it's funny because like you think, you think starting the IVF process, you can just dive in, but like starting the IVF process can sometimes lead to, you know, more doors that you actually have to you know, more issues that you have to address prior, you know, and it's like opening Pandora's box. I totally agree. I say it all the time. Um, and when people come to me on Instagram and DM me and stuff, I try not to be very negative, but I like to be honest about it. And I say, you know, you went in a year ago and got this diagnosis and maybe something else going on. They may find something new, you know, but yeah, it's definitely a Pandora's box. Like I just trying to think about going and doing doing it again for possibly a sibling makes me anxious. Yeah. And as much as I've healed from the first time, the thing about infertility is when you do try to go back for a second time, you go back into it more hopeful and with, you know, some knowledge of how to get through the journey, but they're so different. Every time is just so different. And I'm what, three or four years older than I was when I had it done and got my pregnancy, uh, positive pregnancy test with my son. So I know my body has changed four years. I'm four years older. You know, I may not have had an egg problem before, but I may have an egg problem now, you know? So it's, yeah, infertility is like, <laughs> it's a privilege to be able to do IVF treatment because there's a lot of people who have to stop at that level and they can't 100%. go past IUI, you know? And, and, and their insurance or the the, the necessary savings to be able to, to to do it and still live comfortably is just not there for everybody. So I feel like I definitely am grateful for the privilege of having been able to do it and still um, come out okay financially. You know what I mean? A lot of people just don't and, they, and, they, and some people just have to stop. And so, but every, every cycle is different. You wait a couple of years to have a sibling. It might be tougher the sec time, second time, you know, like I, my my first time was so easy compared to a lot of other journeys. I know for a fact if I went back for a sibling, it's going to like pull my hair out even more than it did the first time. And I'm going to come out with like all these new gray hairs in the front of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I know oh. it. I just know it. It's so crazy. And I'm like, I'm going to be 37 later on this year in October. I'm a Libra. So like close to the 40, then like advanced maternal age, they give us this freaking label again, advanced maternal age, because I'm over 35 and my grandmother had a baby at 44. Nothing was wrong with her, you know, but <laughs> nowadays it's a label for everything, man. Oh my gosh. You yep. can't get away from it. Why did you start your podcast? Let's go there. And what have you gained by sharing your story on a public forum? So I'll start with the, the, what have I, what have I gained? And then I'll ease into why I started. So Sharing my journey has helped me further heal um, from infertility, and it has also helped me heal because I was a NICU mom for 129 days, four months. My son was born very early. I was one of those Black women we've been seeing a lot on social media lately with the Amplified Melanated Voices movement, and they have the maternal rates the maternal disparities between Caucasian women and black women. And I was one of the ones who had a premature baby. Not only did I have infertility, but then I had a baby at 24, four days. So it was, um, it was a lot that I was going through before I started the podcast, but I had a baby. And so I wasn't focused on it um, the way that I probably would have been if he hadn't have survived being born so early because he was only six months gestational age when he was born. I still had four months left to go and he he just couldn't wait. So he came inaugural Friday, 2017, when President Trump was put into office, 5.34 p.m., weight one pound, nine, nine ounces. And so when I when he got to be about one and a half years old, I just had this, this feeling that I needed to tell my story. 
and tell it in a way that was very bold because that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a very bold person and I don't sugarcoat. I'm, I'm not going to hurt your feelings, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it either. And um, so I have a very strong presence and I know it's not for everyone. And um, anything that I speak about, I speak about with passion. I don't speak about frivolous things. Um, and I don't have really a whole lot of small talk conversations that's meaningless. Oh, I love that. So, I love that. I'm so, so I'm, I, I, I'm just like ready to now. get rid of the small talk. The small talk needs to just go, leave, Come on. leave, go out the door. Oh you know, it's nothing wrong with it in certain settings, but then, okay, after a minute or two of some stupid ass question, like, you know, how's the weather today? Or, you know, Gas prices are out of control. Like, dude, I don't give a damn about no freaking gas prices, man. We know it's out of control. I mean, when I graduated high school in 2001, I could get gas under a dollar, you know, fill up my little Cavalier that I had back in the day, you know? So, like, I don't care about that. Can we get to the real stuff? Let me know who you are. Like, it just, I like vulnerable conversations. And I always have loved vulnerable conversations, even though I wasn't always the most vulnerable person. Like, I was such a contradiction. And, <laughs> and I mean that in a good way, because having my son and going through infertility has made me more vulnerable outwardly, even with strangers, like having meaningful conversations. Like I would let them talk about their vulnerable stuff all day long. But when it came to me, like, no, I'm good. Let's talk about you. You know, I was one of those kinds of people. I was, I'm always real curious, curious about other people. But then when somebody else's curiosity about me, I just like to stay mysterious. Maybe that's the Libra in me. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of where. I got to the point when my son was like one and a half years old I was, and I wrote a book and I was like, I know the book is not going to get much traction. I'm not a journalist. I don't have the right kind of connections. I've been in a restaurant business for 10 years. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't have the kind of connection that I needed to make a book and to make it have an impact. And so I figured that if I use my voice, that that would have a bigger impact. If I use my presence, if I used all the things that I was good at, um, speaking, um, connecting with people and um, helping people heal through telling stories and through having expert advice that makes, the, you know, just all the things that a podcast is, you know, and it fit me like a glove, you know. And of course, most people, or, well, if you don't know, podcasting, you don't start out making money. You know, it takes time to get to the point where you could benefit or profit from your podcast. But that was never my intention in the beginning. My intention was never to make money off of it. If it happens, so be it. But my intention has always to be for the silent sufferer because I was that silent sufferer going through my journey for four years. Nobody knew but my mom and my dad. And it wasn't until I conceived my son that I told my sister and my sister and I are very close, even though we didn't grow up in the same household and we have different mothers from previous marriages. We were very close and I, I have a very select few friends. Um, and and um, so. I just knew that I wanted to be a voice for the silent sufferer and I wanted to be a voice for brown skinned women everywhere and black women, women who were too afraid to speak about it, whose communities shunned them when they spoke about it or shunned them because they couldn't physically give their man, you know, all these misogynistic views and chauvinistic views about women and what she's supposed to do and how she's supposed to be and, and how she should live her life. And I just wanted to be that voice for those who couldn't do it for themselves until they found the power to do it for themselves. So that's where the inspiration really came from. And that's also what I gained because I, find I, I gained strength from listening to the journeys, connecting with people from all over the world um, and having people feel like my story or, or the people that I allow to come onto the podcast and the experts and stuff, they find hope in it. They find healing in it, you know, and that's, that's, that's what I emphasize on my podcast is healing. And it's a little bit different from some of the other infertility podcasts. Um, I'm all about healing. Um, and I think healing is, is attainable while you're on, on your journey. And I think that is, um, will always be my focal point for the podcast is to allow people to come on and tell their journeys and find that healing while they're still on their journeys and stuff. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, so you recently wrote an article for the Fertility Tribe describing some racism and prejudice that you experienced at a fertility clinic. Yeah. Um, first of all, this makes my blood boil. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I'm... I'm um, very upset about that. And do you mind sharing a little bit about that experience? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I know that when 
people began to share stories during the amplifying of melanated voices, it was going to, a lot of it was going to be shocking. And a lot of it was going to awaken people to what's going, you know, how you're in a car and you're, and you look over at the person next to you in another vehicle and you're like, Oh, I wonder about this person. Like I'm that kind of person. Like I'll look at somebody, I'm like, Oh, I wonder what his, his or her life is like, you know? And so I think when we say those kind of things to ourselves, we don't really we don't really want to know because when we find out what's really going on out here, it is it'll make your stomach turn. It really will. And that clinic was the clinic that I got the diagnosis of right tubal blockage. And I just like I said in the article, like, was it all in my head? Like, did I really feel what I felt? And in racism makes you question your own intuition. And intuition is one of the strongest ways that you can connect with yourself and connect with with others and get to the bottom of things, really, I feel like. And because I had been dealing with racism for so long, and I'll just say this, too, is that I'm not even I'm not a dark skinned black woman. So I can't imagine what it's like for women who have more African features than I do. And some of the things that I have been through in my 36 years of life, dealing with um, racism at different points in my life, you guys wouldn't even freaking believe it. You would think I'm, I'm making it up. And I actually had some people think that I was making up my story about the article that I wrote with the fertility trial. No way. It was just, no uh, it was way. just that unbelievable, you know? And um, yeah, absolutely. Because the way that I vividly remembered everything and was able to tell it, Five, six years later, I guess it was just a lot <laughs> because I, I painted a picture of what my day was like for being at that clinic that one day. Because that's basically what I did. I, I wrote the article based on the 45 minutes that I was at the clinic. And so I guess because it was so vivid, people didn't believe that I actually remembered those details of the of the incident. But it's no different than a woman who is sexually violated. She will never forget the details of that part of her life or a man who is sexually violated, you know, or someone who suffers a fire and they get burned, their face gets burned. They're going to remember as much as they can about it. You know, if they haven't been knocked unconscious because of, of shock, you know what I mean? So it's kind of the same thing. And when I went through it, I just like, Oh my God. And back then I was wearing my hair straight a lot. So I didn't even have like my kinky curly hair out or nothing like that. Like I almost looked uh, biracial during that time in my life, um, with my long, with my hair straightened, I, I, my, it changes my face a little bit. So, and I was just like, that's why I said in the article, like, did I have on too much perfume? You know, was I coming off too powerful? You know, I've had people actually tell me like, you're too much, like just having a general conversation. They would just, they, people have men and women have told me like, you're too much. Like you need to but like trying to suppress you. No, no, that's not how we're, that's not what we're going to do. So that's why in the article, I was like, you know, um, did I, did I come off too aggressive? Did I come off too passionate or was I, you know, was I just too much period in, 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 as a black woman dealing with people not understanding the way that, um, people of color hair is curly and, and, and stuff like that. And even like my husband is South Asian, his hair is completely straight. So like he would have questions when um, I went complete, completely natural and didn't put chemicals in my hair anymore, he would ask me questions about my hair because it was something unfamiliar to him in the sense of living with someone. Like he's dated black women before and been in relationships with black women before, but it was a different time back then. Black women weren't doing what they were doing now and just being naturally themselves. And so back then when I went to that clinic, I was I was still wearing my hair straight. And so um, forgot the point I was going to make. But anyway, so... <laughs> So, uh, so, um, you know, I just, I'm like, well, daggone it, you know, well, what did, is my hair straight enough today? Like, did I press my hair straight enough today? You know, that was my point. You know, it's things like that, that we think about when we go out into the world, you know, am I, do I look too ethnic today? You know, because that's what people will say to you. Oh, you look very ethnic today or something like that. It's really crazy. You wouldn't believe some of the things that people Say and it's okay when you make the statements and such like that, but it's what happens afterwards that that um, that gives the racism inclination. Because, like I said in the article, the young woman came in and after me, and she was actually older than I was at the time. She like she was like my age now, but back then I was I wasn't thirty yet. And so, 
the lady, the lady came in. I was the only one until she came in a few minutes after me. And if the receptionist hadn't have approached her differently than she did me, it wouldn't have been an issue. It wouldn't have been any inclination of, of possible pre, uh, prejudice and racism. But the way that she interacted with that woman and her husband just let me know that, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm not really like they're not really used to dealing with people that look like me in here. You know, because statistics also show that black women do not go and get treatment, you know, and such. Yep. Yep. Well, um, I mean, in the same article, you talked about trying to find a black female RE. Tell us what that search was like. Man, it's like I live in the wrong freaking state. That's what it was like. <laughs> I, you know, I don't live in a major city where. Oh, we are uh, taking a small break for uh, Monique's little little boy. What's his name, Monique? Omar. Omar. I'm not going to bring him over here because he is like the life of the party, okay? <laughs> he loves uh, people. He's very social and he is very outgoing. But um, so, yeah. So it's you had asked me about um, uh, your search for trying to find a black female. Yeah. RE. Yeah. So like I was finding a, a female RE that was of color before the incident with the fertility clinic wasn't a deal, wasn't, wasn't a deal breaker for me. But when I was going back four years later, I was like, oh my God, I do not want to have the same experience I just did like for a year, a couple years ago, because that would just crush me right now. You know, I can't handle that right now. And so I began the search of looking for an African-American um, woman of woman of color. And I didn't see very many um, like Latino women or Hispanic women. Um, even I came across more South Asian women who were from um, Asia areas that my husband was from, you know. Um, and even with them, I've seen I've received some prejudice in the past. So I wasn't comfortable with that either. And I was looking for a black woman. I just, but everybody that came up when I searched, even if I did a generalized search, like black female endocrinologists or reproductive endocrinologists, they were all coming up in like Atlanta, you know, places like that where they're heavily dominated by BIPOC people. And so even though I'm close to DC where it is more chocolate and it is more brown and, you know, Northern Virginia, and I was actually born in Northern Virginia, um, it still wasn't coming up and they definitely weren't showing up as, uh, reproductive endocrinologist uh, clinic owners. And so, you know, a lot of them were coming up in like your um, franchise type of clinics like Shady Grove, you know. And so I didn't want to go that route. I wanted it to be a private small clinic because I felt like my needs would be tended to a little bit more closely and it wouldn't be like this baby factory machine kind of feeling going into the clinic. And so, it just didn't happen, man. I didn't find anybody. And I was like, well, when I but when I kept hearing the, the commercial for my um, RE office, I just felt drawn to them. And I, I made the right decision at the time. And, they were, uh, you know, it was a rainbow of people that worked in the clinic, nurses, um, anesthesiologists, embryologists and everything. So it was like great. It was wonderful. Wow. Um, well, as someone who has come out on the other side of infertility with your baby boy, Omar. Um, do you think infertility has changed the way that you parent your child? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when my husband and I got married, we already we always agreed that I would stay home with the baby for a little while. So that was something that we had agreed upon many, many years ago when we first connected and we first got engaged and stuff. So that was set in stone. And I always told him that, you know, if I change my mind about staying home, I will let him know. But after going through infertility, and then having him very early, I couldn't wait to stay home with him because it just made me appreciate the journey of motherhood uh, in a way that I that I may not have appreciated had I had given birth to him naturally. Um, and just all of the pain that we went through to get to the point of getting him home, you know, and 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 it makes me a more consciously aware mother. Um, to as far as his needs and paying attention to him, and it's taught me to be more to be more mindful. Both journeys of being an infertility mom, um, and then also being a NICU mom, have made me a more mindful person. And just taking in the small moments and just saying, "Stop, look, look at this, 
freaking sun or look how green our grass is today or, you know, look at all the cardinals in the backyard. You know, red, we get a lot of red cardinals in our backyard. And so, like, there'll be days when the baby will even point out, you know, kids are really good at that kind of a thing. And so he'll point out, look, mom, there's a red bird. I've never, you know, like the first time he said, a re- saw a red cardinal bird, it was like amazing. It was the most amazing thing he's ever seen. And then one day a crow landed on our, um, on our patio in the back. And, you know, those small things, um, I have gained a lot more awareness of through both of those journeys. And, you know, I'm just so grateful and so blessed that I, my husband can maintain the household without having, um, you know, a second income coming from me. So, you know, I don't like to say all the time that, you know, everything happens for a reason, but I, I do think that some things do happen for a reason in the way they do. And then we are connected to our spouses, whoever they are and whatever kind of person they are um, during this journey. And it's very difficult to get through it together and come out okay on the other side, you know. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It really puts you through a marriage boot camp. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a lot of tension those four years that we didn't see a specialist because I was getting mad at him for not moving quick enough. I thought he should have been moving quick enough and getting on board quicker, you know. And and I was like, you know, if it's me, then it's me that's going to have to get all poked and proddy. Like, you should be, or, come on, like, come on, what's going on? You know, it was just a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, man. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's, 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 oh, my gosh. It's so much. that It's so many variables, I think. And what makes it to the point where you might have to go see a counselor after going through it. And then you go through, and I never had any miscarriages, but you know, a lot of people um, in the community, I'm sure, you know, quite a few and have seen it. They go, they have miscarriages, you know, their body's not holding their pregnancy. And, and I mean like three and more miscarriages sometimes some people. So, you know, there's, and we just keep freaking going. I know. You know, that's the crazy thing. We just keep going. I know. It's somehow you just like at the moment you're like, where am I going to pull more strength? Mm-hmm. Like you just find the willingness to keep moving. You know, that's what I've been shocked yeah. about. Like, whoa, mm-hmm. this is this is um this is strength and perseverance that I've never seen before in myself. Yeah. I totally agree. And then, you know, we all talk about the obsessiveness that you get, the OCD obsessive like behavior that you acquire because of the journey. And you're on Google, Googling everything your doctor gave you in a pamphlet or in a, in a, in a, like my RE, you guys probably have the same thing where you already give you a packet and it's all these different ways in which they can get you pregnant. And so you're on Google researching everything. You're on What's the, the the website I like is NCHI. It's like a national, um, it's a national level research company, and they work through a lot of the colleges like Harvard Research Studies and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I I haven't heard of that. <laughs> now I'm gonna yeah. now I got you know another website to add it. to the list. Yeah, the way that I found it is because of one of my podcast episodes where a young lady had asked me to find out more about preserving fertility after you've been through cancer and they've relocated the ovaries. There's a procedure that's done for women who have radiation therapy in their abdomen where their ovaries are pushed into another part of their um, abdomen where it won't be affected by um, where it won't be affected by the radiation treatment. And then when she's ready, they'll retrieve her eggs like a normal egg retrieval. It's really crazy. Wow. It's really, really interesting. And I found out the website because of her. I promised her I would do like a bonus episode. This is a couple months ago. And the website is called NCBI. Um, and it's the National Library of Medicine. And they have so much information about pretty much anything that you can think of. It's called the National Library of Medicine. And I got a a lot of website. I'm going to check that out. Yes. Yes. National Library of Medicine, the National Center for Biotechnology Information. And so they have so many studies that they have um, covered on that website. And so when I was researching for her about some of it, because she wanted to see if there 
were things that could be done that's different from what her doctor had possibly told her. And there were like one or two things that were different that her doctor didn't say anything about. And it's because the success rate is a lot lower. And, um, and so she just was looking for some extra support. And so I had done that for her. And that's when I found that website. And I use it now for anything that if anybody wants to come on and talk about something, I need to understand it. I go on there for everything because I know it's a trusted research website, you know. I love it. But, um, you know, you know, infertility makes you so obsessed about every every small detail, you know, is 16 mm, you know, a good enough follicle, you know, how many follicles are they going to retrieve today? Like, you know, yes. and I was always like a low follicle count person as far as them being mature. I would, I would have a lot of follicles, but then there wouldn't be enough, enough of them that were mature. So like, I would have like maybe 16 follicles growing, but then maybe four or five were mature. And they would tell me, even though with natural cycle IVF, they only retrieve one at a time, they would still give me the numbers. And so I'm like, well, what the hell does that mean? God damn it. My body is not making my eggs right either. Like, come on, give me a freaking break, man. Goodness gracious. So I was like, <laughs> you know, you become so critical of yourself during the process. Oh my gosh. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. I just opened Ooh. a LaCroix because I'm. Oh my I mean, I'm I'm I, I'm drinking sparkling water and twirling my smoky quartz crystal right now. <laughs> like talk, you guys. <laughs> talk yeah. about, you know, the things that you do to mellow mm-hmm. yourself out because it's so true. Like yeah. it's a treadmill. It's a fertility yeah. treadmill. And you're like, okay, I'm going to ramp it up. Okay, now I got to slow it down. Oh, nope. I got to take it. I got to get off the treadmill for a while take a break, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I want to know more about your transfer um, because Mm -hmm. I'm gearing up to do a transfer in two weeks. um, And you did a fresh transfer, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I did a fresh transfer. And what was your decision? How did you decide to do a fresh transfer rather than a frozen embryo transfer? Well, we have we did natural cycle IVF, and in my clinic they call it NCI IVF natural cycle. And with natural cycle, they do not use frozen embryos; they do fresh transfers only because they wanted to replicate natural pregnancy as much as possible, not pregnancy, but conception as much as possible. And so, with I'll explain if anyone has never heard of natural cycle or mild IVF is another way that they say it. Um, some people have told me they, their clinic calls it calls it um, mild IVF, or they call it um, minor IVF. All these little small you know things. So anyway, so with natural cycle, you have to be under the age of thirty five, and then to also qualify, you have to have your menses on time every month give or take a couple days, they consider that normal. And um, so you get a trigger shot, of course, and I was on progesterone and I was on estrace and I was on the baby aspirin, but I didn't have a lot of the other medications, especially since I wasn't um, a patient of endometriosis or PCOS and all these things. So there was a lot less medication that I went through um, compared to a lot of other women who have actual, like really serious, you know, medical things going on with their body. So um, I was a candidate for the NCIVF because of the reasons, because the hypothyroidism could be treated with medication and then the polyps could be treated by uh, minor surgery and such. So it still qualified. And one, two, three, third day um, after the embryo has started growing and multiplying and such, they do the transfer. And for the second, Omar, Omar's got a fun toy back there. He's got freaking sports cars, man. He's got like <laughs> 10,000 of them things. <laughs> These little cars. I'm sorry, guys. I and love so, it. <laughs> and so I had to transfer on the third uh, day of growth. And then let's see. So, yeah, so that's basically natural cycle. So they do everything they can not to like heavily dose you with medication and they try to keep it as, as as natural as possible. And and so they won't do any retrievals of more than one follicle, one egg, one baby. Got it. Thank you for explaining that because um, I've heard, well, I've heard, I've heard of it before, 
you know, a natural cycle. We do natural cycles here. Um, But I wasn't sure about the specifics of it. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it's important for women. I know a fair amount of women who are very afraid to jump into the IVF pool. Mm -hmm. And um, this is kind it seems like it's a nice compromise. It is. It is. It's such a great alternative, especially if you are you you are a candidate and your RE says that, yeah, I think you'd be a good candidate for it. Try it. Just give it a try. It's it's a nice way not to jump full force into the complexities of IVF that they can be. There's a there's a <laughs> there's a lot of medications out there, you know, and um and in any given cycle, you could, you know, you might need my vitro container because you just have that much that you got to get through, you know, and making the biggest and healthiest possible uh, embryos and such. But it is a nice alternative to start out. If I had to do another one after that, I would have done it because that's how simple and uncomplex that it was. Yeah, for sure. That's great. That's great. Is there anything you wish you knew ahead of time before you started fertility treatments? Uh, that this shit was going to take a long ass time. That's what I <laughs> wish. That's what I wish. The baby's not listening to you guys, so I, I could I could get my words out really good at that point. Because it should have takes a long ass goddamn time. That's what I wish I had a new. And I, you know, at that point in my life, I was like, you know, I was all about making it happen. We were running a couple of different businesses at the same time. And so I was just like this go-getter on the move all the time at that point. And so that's how I expected conception to be. I had no idea that it was going to take me until I was 32 years old to conceive, you know, right before my 32nd birthday. And I never wanted to be a very young mom. I never wanted to be a 20-something-year-old mom. I always knew that I would be a little older um, than the average mother. Um, but I just didn't think it was going to be this hard, man. I did not know it was going to be this hard. And I wish that I had known more about infertility before the journey. And I attribute it to our school systems and their education um, because, and I also attribute it just to society as a whole. I don't think we as parents talk enough about sex and talk enough about our bodies with children. My mom and my dad were very open people, and that was just a blessing growing up. Like that was unheard of, you know, in the '90s and in the, the, the mid '90s to late um, '90s, which is where you know the bulk of my childhood was. I had a very open mother, and. Um, my dad is very old school, so he would talk about things, but he waited until I got a little older. But I was 10 years old. My mom was giving me my first sex lesson, you know, long before they started anything in school, in middle school. And so, you know, just having that education, I wish that I had known more of about infertility. And I had also wished that I had stayed on Instagram documenting my journey at the time. I got, I got off of it because family members were starting to find a page, even though it was private. So you know how Facebook will suggest pages based on people that you are friends with on your timeline. And so even though the page was private and my picture wasn't there, I was getting family members requesting to be my friend on Instagram when I was trying to connect with community at the time. And I guess that in the suggestion, it says something about my first name. Like, this is Monique's page on Instagram. Follow her on Instagram. And so I shut I shut that shit all the way down. I was like, anybody <laughs> find out that my baby is, like, in the Black community, they call it um, a test tube baby. It's like this joke, like, calling it a test tube baby. Because, you know, when IVF first started, that's what they thought about it. People thought about, oh, that's a test tube baby. You know, that's a science baby. And so, like... I just, well, I didn't, I didn't have time for that. I didn't really, I just wanted my little baby and I was good. And I was just like, God, just give me one little baby. I won't ask for nothing else, you know, but I wish I had had more community support back then. And it wouldn't took me five, six years to heal, you know, and I just wish I had been a little bit braver back then. Mm-hmm. And I was like, funny because I was all these things outside of infertility, but when it came to infertility, I was the exact opposite of the way I was in everyday life. It was so it's like it was just the strangest thing. So when I look back on it now, I was like, I was the complete opposite. When it came to infertility, I was the complete opposite of who I really was. I um I just want to like second and like just echo what you said about it taking such a long time and, and understanding, you know, 
it, I mean, yes, it's a personal choice when you feel ready to start that journey of treatment. And I also think people should start right away. Like, like don't, yes, wait till you're wet ready. And yes, don't wait. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's it's like a, it's like a game of tug and war, man. It really is because you, just like you said, you know, one hand you're like, we'll wait until we're emotionally ready. But then it's like, well, when the hell will I ever be emotionally ready to deal with the fact that I'm not conceiving naturally? Like I'm not doing what I was created to do. My body's not cooperating, you know, and we put these stigmas on our body not cooperating, but you know, our body does cooperate. Yeah. And the thing about it is that our body allows us to wake up every morning. And our body allows us to eat and digest digest our food and eliminate our food and to move and to do all these things physically with our body. So our body doing what it's supposed to do is just that this one little area is out of our control. And, you know, in in infertility, we often feel like everything is out of control, like, ah, you know, out of control, like all over the place. Right. But I had recently made a post on Instagram, like, you know, infertility will make you feel like your whole life is out of control and it's going awire. But the thing about it is that is that we never really lost control. It's just that some things are out of our control. And so we have to modify our life in a way where we have these small moments of control. You know, I can clean my house when I feel like it. I can wash my butt when I feel like it, you know, <laughs> just keeping it simple. <laughs> Just keeping it simple and it. so that we feel empowered when we're still on the journey. You know, you know my, I, my house crazy. my house has never been this clean. It's like it's like infertility combined with this pandemic. I'm just like, ooh, this is what I control. Yeah. This is what I can control right now. And this is what makes me feel at ease. Yeah. Is living in a space that um is tidy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any surprises along the way? Um, did I have any surprises? My biggest surprise was going back four years later and the right tubal blockage was gone because I went four years believing that, you know, I had the right tubal blockage and then maybe something will happen to the left one too. And I was still ovulating on the right side. I knew that I was ovulating because I get twinges when I, when I ovulate on that side. So I knew the ovulation was still happening, but um, I, that was a big shocker when I felt so relieved when I went back for the second time of getting the fluid test, um, with the radiologist and they said that it was gone. And he, he told me, and he it like, just sort of this. healed yeah. itself. Yeah. Because the, and the radiologist told me, he said, you know, sometimes women will have, tissue stuck in their fallopian tubes because the fallopian tubes are so very skinny, you know, and any tissue that's larger than the width of the fallopian tube can get stuck very easily. And so during that four-year period, I attribute it to many things of clearing that tube because it's not like there was some scar tissue there from a previous surgery or like a STD caused issues with my fallopian tube or ectopic pregnancy. And so what whatever it was, um, it kind of just flushed itself out. And I attribute it to um, the vegetarian lifestyle that I had um, took on while I was waiting to go back those four years. Because I said, you know what? I don't have control over my body getting pregnant, apparently. Uh, not as much as I thought I would <laughs> growing up. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take control over my body and my well-being and my my holistic living. And so I wasn't really out of control with my alcohol is alcohol drinking or anything like that. But I just, I took control of it. You know what I mean? I needed that empowerment to make it through those four years because I probably wouldn't even be married right now. (laughs) Having to wait on him to get his mind together and his emotions together to, for us to go on. And I'm ready to move on to the next phase to have my little baby. You know what I mean? So I just, I took, I took control of my body. I did, I didn't do acupuncture, which is really popular right now. And I think it's very effective in a lot of ways, but I did do Rakai where the specialist um, specifically worked mainly on my right side, where the tubal blockage was. And there was some past life regression type stuff that came up and some old traumas from childhood that came up. And so 
I attribute it to that and I attribute it to my healthy eating of uh, taking on the vegetarian lifestyle and cutting back a lot of foods that, you know, fill us with junk and gunk and exercising like a crazy person. Probably shouldn't have been exercising that hard and um, threw my hormones all off with the hypothyroidism. So, but, you know, it was a, it was a couple of different things that got me through and, and helped me to control some aspects of my life, you know. And that that's just beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful when your body sorts the problem out. So, uh, yeah. You know? yeah. And it doesn't happen for everybody. And um, I wish that it did. You know, I wish that it, it did. And so I know it wasn't just one thing. I know it was, uh, you know, a, a couple different things yeah. that, you know, that cleared that out for me. It almost became essentially like a, a miracle, really, for me. But then I had the polyps. So I had to get those things taken out and get this medication right for my high thyroid disease. So, you know, you go in with one thing and think you got it under control. And infertility says, no, I'm not done with that ass yet. I got something else for you, you, girl. Well, (laughs) something else that you mentioned about um, the the size and shape of the fallopian tubes, Mm -hmm. which I had no clue about until I started this journey that I think it's something like it's the fallopian tubes are smaller than a strand of your hair. Like that is tiny. And like you look at all these uterus pictures and beautiful, Mm -hmm. you know, female empowered, you know, over I know what you're and, about the illustrations. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and you're like, oh, though that's a big highway, you know? And it is not. No. So that just goes to show how small a follicle is when it's released during ovulation because it has to travel through there to get to the uterus, right? So so when I when the radiologist said something to me about, you know, it clearing itself out, I was like, well, you know, really, whatever it was, whatever debris it was from maybe an old menstrual cycle, you know, something like that. I was like, that's kind of crazy because he was asking me, was I having pain on that side? And so I was like, no, because he was thinking maybe I had an ectopic pregnancy at some point and they didn't get it all out. I said, but no, but that would have like showed itself really, wouldn't it? And he said, yeah, it would have showed itself if you had ever been pregnant before and it was from an ectopic pregnancy, you would have lost that tube. So um, it's, yeah. (sighs) I always say the body is much more intelligent than we are. If we just give it what it needs, it's going to do its job, you know, yep. for the most part, you know, yep. and I have other conspiracy theories as to why we suffer with such, so much infertility now, but that's a, that's a different topic for a different day. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to have you back on about those. Oh, I have my theories, man. I have my theories as to why we suffer with so much infertility now. Like it is completely insane. Well, and there's been studies done about it too. There is. And there are, Mm -hmm. I mean, the studies that I have found pretty, I mean, crazy is just the, um, Mm -hmm. the plastic theory is that there's so much PBA and plastics right now, um, in, in everything, everything we consume, everything we bring into the house. Um, and that is one of the biggest differences between, um, I, I, I just remember looking at this study, um, where they compared sperm counts before World War II yeah. and after World War II. Yeah. And they, they even had to lower the average count because sperm had decreased so much. And what was the big difference between before World War II and after World War II? Well, is the production of plastics and certain chemicals. So that's like a whole, oh gosh, I got to do a whole other episode on chemicals and infertility. Yeah. And we're not even going to get into, I don't know if you've ever heard of the big thing about 50, 60 years ago with the Teflon cookware and how there was chemicals on the cookware that was causing all kind of disease in people's bodies. And it was, I want to say it was a big thing in like the 40s and 50s, maybe even a little bit later than that at some point before they got it in control. But it was a big thing with cookware about 40, 50 years ago. Um, I believe it. The chemicals. And it was like lawsuits out of the crazy, like out of the wazoo. Remember that movie, Aaron Brockovich with the cancer from- yes. 
It was yeah. like one of the, it was a big deal like that. It was a big deal like that with the cookware and in, in the surface of the cookware, putting chemicals in people's bodies and stuff. So like all, you know. Oh my gosh, man. Humans can be something else. I tell you. I know. All the stuff we, we deal with, but. I know. Yeah, infertility is a, is a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, to wrap things up, what suggestions, if any, do you have for people who are struggling with infertility? Take evaluation of where you are with your journey. And if you're not in the middle of a cycle and you have some time before a cycle begins, just really, and we hate to do it in this day and age. That's why we're always scrolling and all those things and double tapping. Just, you gotta evaluate some, you gotta really evaluate where you are. And I didn't do that early enough in my journey and I wish that I had of. And you got to evaluate if you're ready to move forward IVF. It is a lot to take in and to digest and to, you know, when you get the, the diagnosis of infertility, it's like an awakening. And it's even though it's kind of a negative awakening, it's still an awakening. And you really got to assess whether you can handle it. And also speak with yourself or your partner if you're if you're if you're in a relationship about what will be your exit plan if you do it this many cycles will you continue on before you move on to something else will you try for say two years and you just do keep going back and forth you know figure out when enough will be enough for you have a counselor or a coach on standby. Somebody who's uh, non-biased and doesn't know you really well, and they can give you some honest clarity and direction and taking care of your body. You know, there's no point in going through all of this fertility treatment if we're not going to take care of our body. And don't exercise too much, ladies, when you're when you're pre- preparing for infertility. I learned that from one of the doctors that I had on the podcast. His name is Dr. Patrick Flynn, and he... Um, has these wellness clinics all over the U.S. where they specialize in hormones. And he said that one of the contributing factors to infertility and fertility struggles with women is that they're working out, but they're working out too hard and too much and doing it um, in a way that creates more testosterone than your body really needs. And so, you know. Moderation, um, moderation. in moderation when you're preparing for IVF and fertility treatment everything in moderation, alcohol, all those things, mm-hmm. smoking tobacco, if you're a tobacco user, you know, all those things. And I was a tobacco user at one point. So I definitely get how hard it is to quit, but you're really going to have to in order to give yourself or maximize your chances of conception without um, there being any other issues with your body. So yep. get your teeth looked at. Yes. That's get your teeth I- to dental hygiene. You'd be, I mean, people, you'd be shocked at what can develop just through your mouth, you know? Yep. Get those teeth right. Get those root canals done. Because when I had my son, I was having toothaches and I was getting Braxton Hicks when I I shouldn't have been. So in the week that I gave, that I went into premature labor with him, I had a toothache. So I'm telling you guys, when they tell you that toothaches can contribute to issues with pregnancy infertility and stuff like that, get those teeth fixed, get them together and all the, get all of that stuff done um, when you can yep. while you're on your journey or uh, before you are in preparation, get it done. hundred percent. <laughs> totally agree. I totally agree with you. Well, Monique, this has been so wonderful. How can people, you know, continue to follow you and your journey and your podcast? Yes, I'm, I'm on Instagram, Infertility and Me Podcast. I do have a Facebook page, um, Infertility and Me Too. Um, I do post on there. I don't post the same kind of content that I do on my Instagram page. Instagram is real, I, where I really connect with people and where people seem to want to connect with me, whether it's personally or through the podcast. So Wonderful. Wonderful. Wow. I just... Um... Thank you again for coming on and and sharing your experience and your wisdom and, um, you know, barrels of baby dust to you. 
<laughs> Thank you. I'm going to send those uh, barrels of baby dust right back to you. Thank you. Because I'm not looking to do any more treatment right now. So I'm going to send them right back to you, Millie, to you and your husband it. along your journey. And I'm, of course, I'll keep in touch with you and everything on Instagram and continue to listen and support your podcast as well, too. So I can't wait. Thank you. Thanks, Monique. All right. <laughs> see you soon. Bye, hon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week.